listen to me. Let's do that hockey. Welcome to Dauber Prospects Report. This is report number 22. I'm Peter Harling, one of the co-hosts here. And with me, as always, is Victor Nuno. How you doing, El Nuno? I'm doing awesome, Pete. Uh, really excited to talk to another really awesome guest this time. But uh, yeah, how you doing, buddy? Good. Still going in the in the DPR Listener League. We're in round 40-something. It's actually my pick, so I'm going to have to do a live pick here again, I think. Mm, you like doing that. Yeah, this will be my second one. All right. I think I'm going to... I've been thinking about it the whole episode in the background because we pre-recorded with our guests. So I think I'm going to have to go with my first choice and, and take Igor Zamula. I know that you, you advised me to take someone else, but going with my gut. You can tell me in the future when that turns out to be the wrong pick. You can say, I told you so. <laughs> I mean, what... You, when have you ever listened to me? We shouldn't start now. <laughs> be way too late. Right, right. <laughs> no, that's not true. I, I take your advice regularly. You mentioned we've got a really good guest. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about scouting again with a pro. We are going to be bringing on Gus Katsuro. But before we get into that, we wanted to remind you that the Dauber Prospects Report is a member of the Hockey Podcast Network. We're very excited to be part of an army of fantastic hockey podcasts. Please check out HockeyPodNet on Twitter for all the shows like this one, talking hockey, fantasy, team coverage, and you name it. It's all in there. You can also use the DraftKings promo code THPN, which stands for the Hockey Pod Network. You're listening to this show. More on that in a bit. The DPR show is also proudly sponsored by Fantrax. We like Fantrax. It is the ultimate league manager for the, any dynasty sport you play. It's completely customizable for however you want to set up your league for scoring categories. An amazing draft room to host the draft pick, tracking for years, a treasury option, and so on and so much more. If you missed our last episode, Victor and I really elaborated on the benefits of using Fantrax to manage your dynasty league. You can use the promo code to sign up with that with a, for a free league with Fantrax, and the link is fantrax.com forward slash dpr show that'll get you a free league on fantrax you're welcome so we hope you guys have been enjoying our podcast series on scouting one of the shows this summer we've been focusing on is, is or topics we've been focusing on this summer is scouting since we don't have hockey going on and we've been getting a lot of positive feedback on those subjects so we decided to do one more so Report 22 today will be joined by a friend of the show, Mr. Gus Katsuros, who was the original guest on the very first ever Dauber Prospects podcast way back in the day, further back than I care to admit, as a matter of fact. So Gus coming on our podcast gave us some instant credibility. So thank you very much for that. And I can't wait to talk to Gus. So why don't we do that? Let's get right into it and join and have Gus Katsuros join the podcast. Welcome back to the show, Gus. Gus, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for having me back on. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you back on. You're the inaugural guest of the Dauber Prospects podcast. It was a different name back then, but it's the same show. And you gave the show instant credibility. So I'm eternally grateful and in debt for that. So for those of you who, who may not know Gus, Gus, do us a favor and just kind of tell us a little bit about like, yourself, maybe how you got into hockey and scouting right from the beginning, what your journeys look like as a scout and where you are today in your current role. Okay. 
Well, I, I kind of got a bit lucky. I started doing more player evaluations right after the NHL lockout of 0405. I hooked up with an outfit called McKean's Hockey. I remember what, reading their magazine throughout, oh my God, through my teens and um, like, well, essentially through the 90s, uh, which was actually my 20s. And just understanding kind of how in depth they got and really loving the publication. After a while, it just took me a, a little bit of courage to get up and say, okay, guys, can I contribute some way, somehow? So I started on a fantasy beat there at McKean's. They had a slew of quality player evaluators. So scouts that eventually went down to work for teams, others that went down to work for agents, others that became agents. And they all contributed to teaching me how to scout players above and beyond just the fantasy aspect to really get down and dirty into the, uh, the skills-based elements. But I was also fortunate to be able to hit the cusp, the uprising of hockey analytics. So while I was being taught how to assess players using skills, there was also this element of data. And I come from an IT background, so that data element really fueled some of the intensity. And while I don't know whether or not I agree with everything that's kind of come out, there are certain concepts that have absolutely changed the landscape. They have affected scouting. They affected how scouts work. They affected how teams evaluate players. And they've affected how we have evolved as player evaluators. Peter, I've known you for over a decade. I'm sure that if we were to talk about scouting back in the day and how we evaluated players, and if we were to do that today, it would be two distinct conversations. While some of the core elements might remain the same, I think that we've both seen a significant change in the way that players are adapting to higher skilled elements. They're skilled quicker. They're much more impactful out of being drafted and directly into professional leagues, whether that's the NHL, AHL, or in Sweden or in, or in Europe generally. And I think that we've seen some things kind of fall off the wayside. Stuff like the defensive defenseman. That was a go-to way back in the day. You had a defensive defenseman, an offensive defenseman. That paradigm is now done. And I think analytics helped that a little bit. So now I am currently, for about a year now, I've been working with SportLogic. They are a hockey data and AI outfit. They provide a lot of hockey data to 31 of 32 NHL teams around the world. If you ever watch Sportcast, Sportsnet broadcasts, you'll see our data and, and some statistics used from there. So I've kind of parlayed my scouting work, which was really vital to the product that we're trying to, to launch and trying to apply that and try to put a bit of a number spin if possible and trying to configure at least marry the two things so that we can provide a much more value-added approach to player evaluation than what is currently available in the public or private sphere. That's where I am. Ooh, that sounds like a really cool job. Is that your day job now? Have you quit anything else? Yep. I used to work for financial institutions for the yeah. better part of 20 to 25 years. And let me tell you, the day that I quit that job, <laughs> the greatest day of my life. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night telling my wife, honey, I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. <laughs> the entertainment value was there. Yeah. So, oh, that's that just warms my heart. That's so great. I'm so happy for you, dude. You. you guys just had Sean Tierney get recruited from your team. I, I noticed today that he's announced with the with the Senators. That's correct. Sean provided a very valuable service. He was kind of the liaison between our clients and our workshop. So he's known a ton of people. He's had a big impact in the NHL already. Ottawa really got a good one in the fact that he's a hard worker. He understands his stuff. And when he doesn't understand something, he asks a lot of questions to make sure that he gets a lot of insight before he goes off and, and creates a project plan or any type of a plan. So I think that Ottawa is a much better team today than they were yesterday. Growing up as a Leaf fan, I'm kind of a love-hate relationship there, but I'm happy yeah. for Sean. But 
Yeah, Ottawa. Uh, you're next, my friend. <laughs> so that little intro that you just gave yourself was was just brilliant. It totally forecast a lot of the questions that we have on tap for you. So that was pretty neat. So let's. That get... was great. So I'll see you guys turn around. That. Oh, <laughs> well, let's elaborate <laughs> on some of those a little bit. So Gus, you talked about your time with McKean's. You were there for a long time, and you basically wrote the book for them with the yearbook for I don't know a decade, maybe. As in it, it that it, that publication is a long-standing staple for fantasy hockey lovers. And the fantasy draft season is is here. It's upon us. And we're all trying to project what the players and prospects are going to do this season. Who's gonna who's gonna do better, who's gonna regress, so on and so forth. So talk to me about your your process that you used there for projecting players and how that might have tied into all the scouting work that you did throughout the season. So the main publication really focused a lot on the NHL players and immediate prospects. So McKean's had two distinct layers. There was one layer that really focused on uh, draft eligibles, and there was another another layer that focused on players that were already drafted or potentially had some kind of a a future in in, in hockey. and, And instead of being drafted, they may be signed as free agents. So players that are based out of Europe that may have never really gotten through the draft. The independence of the amateur side versus the pro side was one of the key features there because we had a distinct group that really, really laid into where is this player and where does he rank in our rankings? Where do we think he's going to be? However, that's only part of the the equation. The second part is when I took over. I took over thinking, okay, so if this player was drafted in this situation, my expectations are, and I didn't know what my expectations were. As we kind of began the journey, um, there wasn't any real baseline facts or stats or anything that I could say, well, this player does this and therefore is projected to do this. You had to really get down and deep into the skills. So kind of going back to my original point, the scouts at McKean's explained the concept of the four S's to me, speeds, smart, skills, and skating. Every player can be evaluated using those four categories, and there are tons of subcategories. So the subcategories could actually be duplicated. I take speed, for instance. Speed could be an element of skating. Speed could be an element of smarts because you have to play at a certain speed. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going at 100 miles per hour. You could be going at 80% of your highest value, but you still need to execute. So the skills involved in where a player was in their development was one of the key aspects as to where we thought that this player would end up in the lineup. So if the projections were for this player to, let's say, be a first-line player, we weren't going to start him on the fourth line. We were going to give him the opportunity to go uh, and, and light it up as much as they possibly could. The evaluation of prospects was very key because what we would be able to do is slot in any kind of holes that teams maybe had. And rather than going and finding another player through another acquisition method, they were just able to plug in players from the prospect line. So that was a very special learning experience on my part, being able to evaluate where a player is and are they ready to jump into the NHL? How close are they? There's a lot of financial repercussions that come to that. So teams would really appreciate having a cheaper, younger talent than going and spending millions of dollars on somebody that may not necessarily be in their long-term future. So when I joined McKean's, there was already an established process. What I also was able to do was take some statistical analysis and place it into the model building. So the conversations weren't necessarily just about skills anymore. Now we were trying to evaluate players based on some kind of a baseline. By the time that we got into the level where we were able to provide a little bit more detailed analytics on player evaluation model, it was my time to leave. So I joined SportLogic. I'm not really sure whether or not they took that to another level. 
but the primary focus was trying to figure out what a player can do. Where does he fit into a professional lineup? How far away are they in that professional assessment? And if they've already made the NHL, where are they? Are they at their peak? Are they on the upside? Are they on the downside? How do injuries take into consideration? And now we're getting into a lot of the things that most fantasy GMs probably do on their own. But when you're able to add a lot of skills and understand just how important those interactions between skills, because it's not just about skating, it's about what the skills around skating do for that player. Once you start to put those little patterns together, you see these patterns on a regular enough basis that you can start looking at other players pretty cold and understand a little bit of where they might end up becoming. So the evaluation of the player skills was my major contribution to the magazine, as well as adding more of a data element that really wasn't there when I first joined. And that also had to do, I had to talk a lot to scouts about the value of data. And when you have a mindset that I can see what I see, but I don't care about any other type of input, those were sometimes hard conversations. In the end, I feel that there was a nice happy medium. You can still do what you do because I think that you do it really well. However, conceptually, the data tells us that blah, 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 this and this. So when you're doing your player evaluations, as we age and as players age and as the game changes, we need to be able to adapt all of these things into our prospect valuations, into our different models, into our projections from an NHL perspective. And then from that point, it became just conversations as to where do we think these players are, and then putting them into their proper slots, giving them a projection that we felt comfortable with, and tweaking where possible towards the beginning of the season after training camp start, because things change on a daily basis after that. That was a long-winded answer for nothing. but. Thanks. No, not for nothing. That was fantastic. And we definitely love hearing all that. We want to talk a little bit more about projections. We like to watch trends in hockey and try to project what the future will offer. In terms of value for fantasy, of course, we look at teams like Tampa and Vegas who have won three cups the last four years. And one thing they have in common is size and mobile defense. The NHL is a copycat league, which suggests that teams might be putting an emphasis back on size and big defensemen. Since the lockout, the rules kind of changed a little bit, opened a window for small, skilled, undersized players, especially defensemen. As you mentioned earlier, the roles of just offense and just defense have kind of been blurred a little bit. If the pendulum is swinging back towards bigger players, I wonder what this means for some of the smaller players. One of the favorite in the fantasy community is someone like Lane Hudson. There's also a lot of other guys. I think about like Scott Perunovich, who has struggled to break through in the NHL, but he's still kind of waiting there. So what, what do you think that means for some smaller mobile defensemen? Is they, they going to have a harder time now with the swing back in the other direction? I think the element of mobility on the back end began after the initial lockout. And I say the initial because it's 2004, 2005. And the reason why I kind of start there is because leading into the lockout, a big narrative was just how bad the clutch and grab had become. It was a bad part where the NHL was becoming more of a, use Mario Lemieux's word, a garbage league, where you can kind of ski off of a player, hook them and skate with them. You can really use a lot more physicality than we currently see. And the game itself had to change. They opened up the game to try to make it more free-flowing, less clutch and grab. If you recall coming out of the, the lockout at that time, there were penalties galore for the first year. 
they became less as they kind of came around because players started to understand that skill is going to trump clutch and grab. The physicality also changed. I've never been one to think that one player makes enough of a difference to be a physical team. If Mitch Marner has to be physical in the corner because that's what the play dictates, Mitch Marner has to be physical in the corner. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And if he's not, then that's a lost opportunity that somebody else is going to have to pick up the slack on. So I think smaller players have adapted to the speed of the game. They are less inclined to be feared of the bigger players. Bigger players have an advantage of being bigger players, but smaller players have the advantage of getting right up to bigger players and negating their size by getting as close in proximity where the only way that they can apply any physicality is through penalties. So I think that smaller players, as long as they have enough speed and skill, and let's be honest here, we're not talking about just ordinary players. We're talking about players that have a high enough level of compete, skill, physicality, and smarts to be able to think the game better, use their skills better, the game itself is more conducive to more offensive ability. So we're seeing smaller players getting more opportunities just because of the fact that teams demand more offensive output. We've gone away from two defensemen on the power play to one defenseman and then four forwards. You can see how the offensive elements are leading the game. Kids are becoming much more inclined to be skilled enough to play in the NHL at 19, 18, 19, 20 years old. They're not worried about the physicality. They're not worried about the bigger players. They're just worried about getting their game to a point where they're becoming more impactful. I think that there will always be a place here for the big hulking, but being able to skate and stay with the speed and pace of the game. But we see now that there is a distinct section of players, I should say selection of players, that can really excel using a more skilled method while applying minimal physicality. Remember, even by being physical, a big player hurts themselves. So it's not like they just go around bashing, smashing, crashing, and then get away with nothing. There's a toll to be paid for all of that. You'd like to think that there's a bump and grind type of style that's prevalent in the NHL. I think that's kind of always been there. It's just less pronounced now because nobody's clutching and grabbing anymore. And so when we do see physicality, it's very focused. And I think even smaller players, you don't necessarily have to be a big player. As long as you got balance and agility and you have certain skills that would make you be able to either absorb or initialize contact and then being able to work with the consequences of that contact, that's where I think you're seeing players that are really excelling. Younger, smaller, quicker smarter. I want to use the term smarter, although I'm not really sure that's really right. I think that everybody's smarter because we just have a lot more input, a lot more defensive, sorry, a lot more defensive, again, defensive, a lot more developmental input. You have development coaches coming in at age 13, 14, and 15. These kids, they didn't understand what it takes to be professionals. They understand what it takes to be impact and size has become a much less relevant overall evaluation beginner. And I don't know whether or not we're going to go back to while well, size really matters. I think it's a matter of picking a player that is going to have impact. That impact doesn't necessarily have to be just uh, physicality. I think it primarily has to be offensive. And then after that, you see where there's any deficiencies and then coaching is probably the one element that takes care of any of those deficiencies, along with some kind of a veteran experience. Well, as players age and as they get through the NHL, 
and I'm just focusing on the NHL at the moment, they learn what it takes to be effective. Size, no size. As long as they're skilled enough and smart enough to play, they'll find a way in the NHL. Light the lamp with DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, new customers can make a $5 bet and score $150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with code THPN. That's code THPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. You mentioned the four S's a little bit earlier on as something that was introduced to you right out of the gate at McKean's. It's a scouting philosophy that, that you embraced and helped develop and, and caught me on. So it's the skating, the skills, the smarts, and the speed. So throwing in the, the evolution of hockey aspect into this, how would you say that has changed over the last decade or so or, or over time as hockey continues to evolve? And how does that change the way you scout? So the way you scout is probably the primary point here. People used to ask me what my, what's the most important skill? And I always kind of gave two answers depending on who I was talking to. The first answer was smarts. If you have a smart player, you could mold that player into being a very effective player, even if there is a deficiency in skill. I believe that wholeheartedly. I don't believe it as much as I used to in the past, because I think that now you have um, a lot of coaching, a lot of systems, and a lot of more in-depth systems analysis that is done by players, not just by coaching staffs or people that are trying to enact these systems. So I think that there's more contribution coming from players, and that is kind of led into them being a smarter overall. Hockey is about is a game about either creating space when you have the puck, or closing down space when you don't have the puck. So first two-step acceleration is probably the most important skill overall. The game has changed because I think that players can do things now at a much higher speed, at a much higher pace than they have in the past. So I should be very careful about what I say about speed, but if a player was doing something at 100 miles per hour, back in the day, that was considered exceptional. Now everybody's at 100 miles per hour, so it's been normalized. So you see players that have a skill level that maybe a decade ago would have been considered elite or all-star, but is now considered to be pretty standard. So now there's more direct competition between the second, third, and fourth line. I think a first-line player is a first-line player, and there's a distinction there that can't be broken. But a second-line player could slide into the third. A fourth-line player could slide into the third. There's a lot of instances where you see players may just kind of go up and down the lineup based on a situation or a role or a need. Well, you can't do that if you're a fourth-line player and you don't have the skills available to be able to play in the second line. So between the second and the fourth line, the level of skill and the proficiency of those skills has closed so fast that you can now have your second and third line essentially wiped out and still be competitive enough with a really good first line and some replacement players just to kind of hold the fort. So I think that the skill level has just become so, so much better across the board, across all positions. I don't do goalies. So goaltenders are kind of difficult for me, and I, I don't bother evaluating goaltenders, so we're not going to discuss them. But defensemen are much faster. They're smarter. They both have to go. There's no offensive, defensive defensemen. They both have to be able to go, which means that the other defenseman has to be smart enough to recognize that Peter's going, Gus has to stay back. Or if Peter switches with the forward, now everybody has to move. So 
the skill level is much better. The skill level between all kinds of different levels is, is much smaller. And I find that these players now have to do things at a much higher pace. And I think that's just as demanding. So it, it, it just happens so quick. And, and I'm just thinking back even a decade ago where you still saw a big, huge defensive defensemen that were just there to kind of patrol in front of the net. And that doesn't happen anymore. Now you need to have a defenseman that's able to kind of go. You have to hit four at the line. They have to be much more skilled. They have to be ready to play and contribute in ways that may not necessarily be typical of what they did as they developed into the professional ranks. I hope I answered the question there, but. Yeah, it's instigated a little mini follow-up question, if that's okay. So you talk about pace being being a, the more more dominant factor now than smarts. And you talked about how speed has become kind of negated. I mean, you can see players who are burners and they can, they're just faster than everyone else on the ice. They're just going a mile a minute, but it doesn't mean they're productive with that speed and the brain and the hands don't keep up with the feet. Like, yeah, they're the first one on the puck or they can separate from the person checking them, but they don't turn it into anything. It play dies two seconds later on their stick or they make a bad pass. What are some quick little tricks you can share with how you recognize a player that can think with pace? And, and that might change from different levels, right? Like the OHL level versus the AHL versus the NHL. There are going to be some different tells and things that you look for at different grades of hockey, I'm sure. That's an absolutely fantastic question because it's really relevant to what's going on today. So let's take this to level at a time. At the NHL level, I think you can judge smarts by how well a team is playing in a certain system and a player freestyle, how do they cover? Does the player freestyle out of a conceptual system to the detriment of the system to make it better? Do they do something above and beyond? Do they enact ideas that aren't necessarily inbred on the team level? So smart players will know where to be, where they should be based on where the teammates are, where the puck is, whether they should be stealthily looking for soft ice or be directly involved in the play. Support. I cannot stress the element of support enough. It's not something that gets talked about enough. But if two players are battling in the corner, that third player that's just waiting for that outcome, he's just as important as those two players battling because they can direct where that puck is going to go. That third player has got to be able to jump on it. Support is a huge tell of smarts. You could tell that whether or not this player is actually there just to be there or that player is there because they strategically understand where they need to be. As we kind of get down into the more developmental leagues, to your point, in the OHL, that breaks down really fast. So systems are enacted, but players don't always stay within the concept of their systems. So from a smarts perspective, what I would look for is how well do they recover if something breaks down? And how well do they maybe adapt to that breakdown? And what skills do they use to adapt? Is it something, just an element of speed? Do they need the puck to do this? Are they the ultimate support player? Are they the ones that need to have the puck to drive the play? Otherwise, they don't really contribute. So that's kind of how I would figure from the NHL level, from a pro level where you see systems and everything is really integrated and really downright, it's tight. Everything is tight at the professional level. As things tend to drop. So in the AHL, it's a little less tight. In Europe, it's a little less tight. When you start getting into developmental leagues, it's a lot less tight. So judging players' 
intelligence is more so about watching what they're doing with, without the puck, in reference to the puck, and support. Support is the biggest and my first thing that I look for to see whether or not a player understands the game and whether or not they're able to use a skill set that is supported by a smart background. Sometimes that happens. Other times it doesn't. When it doesn't, it's very frustrating because this player can do much better and they don't. And I'm not really sure how. And then that's development. That's essentially what you're kind of looking for your development coaches to say, you know what, this player does this. If they only did it with X amount of pace or they stacked another skill on top of this base skill, which makes them much more effective. I mean, I say that it drops off in the OHL or in the CHL or, or in the developmental leagues, but that's the reason why you don't have those development coaches that you do have at the professional level to be able to isolate those particular instances and say, you'd be a much better player if you did X, Y, and Z, and then putting a plan in place to be able to enhance those skills. So that's kind of how I would approach smarts. That was awesome. I really appreciate that insight. And I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier as a bit of a pioneer in the analytics of hockey and scouting. I'm, I'm a huge fan of analytics. I love numbers and math, which is part of what attracts me to fantasy hockey and hockey in general, which is probably not the same for everyone, but sounds like a little bit for you. But I also appreciate how that has to blend with the eye test. You cannot just look at numbers. You have to see what's happening on the ice. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the analytics blend with the eye test, with interviews, with the human factor and just knowing what's going on in these players' lives and things that kind of make them tick. How do you kind of bring all that together and, and evaluate them on all those points? So I want to make this into a two-pronged answer. You have statistics that are able to judge performance, specific performance under specific situations that is valuable to a team overall. There is a second element, and this is where I think analytics has actually been better than the rest. Conceptually, as the game has changed, we've had to find ways to be able to measure those changes and the impact brought to those changes. The initial way we ever evaluated any kind of player was things like goal scored, assists, points, box score stats, plus minus is flawed beyond something that we need to discuss through here. But those were the initial tools. And then somebody said, well, you know, what if we use shots instead of goals, assists, and points? Because now it opens up your sample size a little bit more. Well, what if we open up the shot attempts? Now you have a much better. Well, what if we do expected goals? Now you have something different. There has been an evaluation process or evaluation method to be able to accompany the changes within the game. Horsey is just a matter of shot attempts, missed, blocked or uh, shots on goal, and goals, of course. Expected goals try to extend some element of quality to the quantity. Going back to what you just said, I think that there has been a relapse, probably isn't the right word, but I think that there was a point where it was strictly numbers, and now people are starting to understand that you could do a lot when you blend a little bit of both and put perspective on each. One of the things that I really did not like about the analytics rise was how they said it was said that, okay, this number kind of conforms to what I see in the eye test. You don't want to do that. You're not looking to audit your data points. You're looking at the data to find anomalies. What's wrong? Where are we trying to find something in this player? 
he doesn't really get results. How does that correlate? And so what I found over the years was if you take that element of data and find that nugget, and there's always a little nugget, you're able to build a profile around that player based on the data, and you're able to build a different or similar profile based on what you see this player doing. I'm going to discount character and family situation and all the personal stuff. It is extremely important for each player, but I don't have a way to be able to evaluate that other than talking through the player or their immediate peers. So if I don't have access to that kind of information, all I can do is see what they do on the ice and see what those results are when it comes to performance. As the statistics have gotten better and as the evaluators using those statistics have gotten better, we've gotten better metrics, better insights, better concepts that have now flittered directly into player development and have changed the game. They've removed analytics is the distinct cause of the defensive defenseman going the way of the dodo bird. There's no reason to have a Coke bottle on the ice when you could have another player that could generate offense or be another weapon in some way, shape or form. You don't need that defensive element. And that's what I think analytics has done. It's kind of paired away some of the things that teams don't necessarily really need to do but they still need to be able to see what does that player do in certain situations. On the amateur side, you're trying to evaluate, and I think that there's still a distinct gap here, they're trying to evaluate where does this player project in the NHL? I think that there's still some work left to be done there, and I'm having access to a ton of data that I have. I don't think that we're there yet. At some point in time, there will be some kind of a correlation, but it's not there yet. However, because of all the studies and the things that have kind of happened throughout the rise of analytics, we evaluate players very different because of that. And now we have some ways that we're able to measure it. So now just to kind of go distinctly on your points, somebody looking at a player will evaluate that player based on the tools that they understand. A hockey person will base it on those hockey things, the decisions that they expect a hockey player to make. Somebody dealing with data doesn't care about any of that. They're doing an evaluation of the data and seeing what does the data tell us, not a preconceived notion and trying to add data to make that preconceived notion a reality. What is the data telling us? And that's why I say that it just, they've, analytics has provided more conceptual backbone to the game than just specific performance measurements. There's no replacements. Analytics does not replace scouting. Scouting does not replace analytics. They don't marry very well, and I don't expect them to marry very well. But what I expect to see is one method that evaluates things in one way and another method that evaluates things in a different way. And you're looking for some kind of a correlation there. You're not looking to audit your data points. You're looking to see where are the gaps. And one of those methods is going to show you a gap. It's going to show you this player just smashed out of the developmental league. But the watching him going, eh, yeah, he might have. But there are these flaws, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. And they can kind of go through that. And say we either work on these or the player does not develop into a viable NHL player. So that's kind of where I think both have their distinct purpose. Sometimes they overplay, overplay and, and, and provide some kind of, I don't know, blanket analysis. But I think that independently, they offer two distinct ways of evaluating players that have some overlap that it gives somebody else the ability to use both tools and come out better in the end. That is such a good point. And I just wanted to reemphasize that. I think it's really easy sometimes to come up with an idea like this player is good at this or bad at that or, and then try to find 
data that supports your theory, right? But that's really not the best way. Like you're saying, that's not, I'm just reiterating what you're saying for everyone else. That's not the best way of doing it. You've got to be objective in, in, in all aspects, right? Look at the data objectively. Don't try to make it tell a story. And when you're watching the player, just try to see what's there. Don't try to make up, don't try to make it fit what you already think. It, it's actually really hard to do because we all have preconceived notions. We all try to put things into boxes and expectations. It's just natural, but you kind of have to continually fight that. But, and I hear it all the time. People will ask questions about, oh, this player, is, isn't he like this? Isn't he going to be stuck like this? And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, it, how do you know that, right? I mean, maybe he's done that before, but we don't, we can't say that for sure, right? You have to kind of keep an open mind and, and be willing to change your opinion about that. I'd like to just add one last point to all of that. A hockey person will know how to be able to express an idea using hockey terms, ideas, notations, whatever. An analytics person will be able to say the exact same thing using data, a statistical analysis. They're two different methods and they are not supposed to be the same thing. They're supposed to be two independent valuation methods. The hockey person is telling the data person hockey ideas. The data person is telling the hockey person data ideas. They're not speaking the same language. They're speaking Greek. And you can't get anywhere if you're speaking Greek. I know it's a bad joke, guys. I'm Greek. But you need to be able to speak the same language. So data people, I think, have had and have done so far. They've had to make a, do a better job expressing their ideas and hockey ideas. And hockey people have to do a better job and have done a better job expressing their hockey ideas using some kind of a data method. So I think once the language starts to get better, I think we'll get much more fruitful outcomes. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a brand new analytical method. It doesn't have to be a brand new scouting method. It just has to be somewhere where they can both simply understand each other. Okay, I got a follow-up question on this subject too, if that's all right, Victor. So, so guys, you wear both hats. Right. You're, you work for an analytics company. You're a pioneer in, in analytics and hockey, but you're also an established talent evaluator. And, and I, you go to the games, you watch the players, you get that. You wear both hats, you do both things. So depending on which one you do first, if you like study the data on a player and then go and watch him or vice versa, watch him and then study the data on him, it's impossible for you. Well, I don't want to speak for you, but it'd be impossible for me to not get preconceived notions first from either from whichever one you do first. And so now you've got some bias. So you're going into the second stage where you're, and as you mentioned, you're not auditing your information from one side of the other with the contrary stance. How do you check your bias? I guess the, the short version of what I'm trying to ask here. So that's a really hard question. And it's something that you just have to do as you kind of gain more experience. I find that if I, watch a player first, I get a good, let me qualify this. I think it takes three live views to have a very good idea of where a player is and what a player is. You don't need to know exactly the details, but I could tell you that this player is a scoring winger, a scoring center, a defensive center, a defensive defenseman, an offensive defenseman. They have X as far as a skill set and Y fills in some of those holes. When I'm evaluating that player through a visual medium, that's what I'm looking for. When I'm going back to look at the data, I'm not going back to look at the data to verify, is this what I really saw? That's not what I'm looking for. Now I'm going into performance. 
if the player has bad performance, but I really love the viewings, where is the disconnect? And that's where the questions begin. So what I kind of hope to do from there is remove some of the bias. I don't think I'll ever be able to remove any of the bias. Once I see a bad skater, I'll see a bad skater. But what I've also learned over the years is, actually, I have a very good example of this. I always thought that if you can't skate fast enough to be in the NHL, you'll never be a very good NHL player. I absolutely am totally wrong on that. And I had that bias for a decade. Now what I feel is as long as the player is able to get to a spot where they can advance the play, have average to better skills that they can do something with the puck, whether that's playmaking, shooting, doing something, even if that means that they're a slower, more peripheral type of player, but they're still advancing the play, that's the key point. Sometimes I feel that I miss that. I, I, I felt that I missed that as I was watching games. And then I'd go back and I'd look at the data and say, there's something happening here. And this player is a lot better than what I think. What are they doing right that is leading to these results? And is it this player that's doing it? Or is the data telling me something that they are inheriting from other players while they're playing on the ice with them? So that's a distinct situation where I felt that my bias was destroyed. I think I still have much more because we all have our biases. And as much as we try to contain, I don't think we'll ever get rid of them, but as much as we try to contain our biases, we try to find ways to make our evaluation methods better to slowly mitigate any of those biases from coming through. Hopefully you also have people that, like, I mean, Peter, if I can sit in here and talk to you all night about specific players and we go back and forth, you're going to say some things that I'm not, I'd never discovered. And I'm going to tell you things you've never discovered. And then we're both going to go away and we're going to look at data and we're going to say, well, Gus was right. Or Peter was right. Or maybe there's a happy medium somewhere there. I think that there's a bunch of different things that you could do to try to remove your bias, but I don't think it will ever be fully gone. And the one thing that I think is really bad, and I, I use my golf game as a reference here, I've taken golf lessons and tried to become a better golfer. And it means I've had to make wholesale changes on my grip, on my stance, the way that I move, the way that everything. But when I find that I'm struggling, what do I do? I go back to those default methods that aren't part of the new Gus. It's the old Gus. Players do the very same thing. And bias makes its ugly head using that same method. You think that you've gone ahead and done certain things and become better, and you have, but then something happens and then you revert back to your old ways. The bias kind of starts to seep in through. You just need to be active and to just try to monitor and, and understand that it's going to come through. What do you do when it does come through? Do you follow it? Is it justified? you talk to somebody? Do you look at data? Do you go watch more video? Do something to try to mitigate the effect of that bias. And I don't know what that is because I think that every situation is very different. All right. Another question I wanted to ask you guys was kind of switching away from the analytics side, going on to the video scouting. So the scouting community was really forced to embrace video scouting during COVID. Didn't really have another choice there. And you've been video scouting for like a decade before that. I remember you First, first time we met, you, you were recording hockey games on TV with the VCR. Kids, VCR stands for Video Cassette Recorder. You could record a TV show like a hockey game and then watch it on tape later. Obviously, so scouting has evolved over the years with technology. How has the value of that changed? And how do you recommend properly scouting on video? 
So the first thing I would say on that is one, what that's done is it's actually made a lot more video of players more available to a wider swath of people. So before, when we first started, there was hardly any video coming out of Russia. Now there's tons. There was hardly any video coming out of Sweden and Europe. Now there's tons. There was limited video coming out from some of the lower leagues here in North America. Now there's tons. So what the first thing I think is it's opened it up to a bunch of different people that can now provide more, more video. I think that there's a caveat that you have to be very careful of. Video is really cool because you can stop it. You could rewind it. You could place it in a certain position. You could really see shapes of where players are. You could see shapes of where players should be on the ice. You could see shapes of what the player's doing, their movements. And I think that you can really hone in on some of those individual skills. The caveat there is I think sometimes you can get a little too deep and think that you've discovered something. And when you start going to live views and the distinction between the speed of a live view versus a video view is very distinct. So I think that sometimes what video shows you is a player doing things at a higher pace than they really are. So you need to be very cognizant of that. The one plus of video is I'm able to draw on the screen. If I could draw on the screen, I could present an idea that I wasn't able to present a decade ago. X's and O's. And I really need to stress that I think that all talent evaluators should at least do some cursory understanding of hockey systems. Know what a 1-2-2 is. Know what a 2-1-2 is. Know what a 1-3-1 is. Understand the shape of it. You don't need to know the details, but understand the shape of it. And then you'll see different things happen as the plays kind of go on along. Video also cuts off a lot of the stuff that I don't I don't see, which I really do like to see. For instance, a player that has a rotten shift, when they go back to the bench, what happens? Does the coach talk to them? Do they actually have any kind of communication? Does it a, is it a development coach? Does the player just go and hang his head and, and nobody talks to them? I think that's very important. That's a key thing. If something happens with a goaltender, does somebody go and talk to the goaltender? I'd like to see that kind of stuff. And that's not always prevalent video. The other thing with video is it's cut. It's whistle to whistle or whistle to goal. So anything that kind of happens afterwards might get lost in translation a little bit. And the one gripe, this is my biggest gripe that I have on video. Unless you're watching an entire game, all you're doing is watching little clips. So let's say that you have a clip of a player performing an incredible piece of skill. How long has he been on the ice? How long has the other players been on the ice? Are they there in the first shift, first few seconds of a shift? Or have they been playing for two minutes and this player is able to do it because they're tired? There's not enough context there about shift length and how long a player has been on the ice to determine whether or not they're actually performing at peak level or they're just maintaining. So I think that that's a very bad element. And sometimes when I get video clips, I, the first thing I ask is, how long have the players been on the ice? And when that data is not available to me, readily available to me, I think that's what induces some bias. This player does this because, oh, look at what they did, but not realizing that they did it all at the end of everybody else's shifts. So it's, a, it's little things that you have to be very cognizant of while doing video scouting um, that takes away some of its effectiveness. I think the, the ability to draw, the ability to, to watch many games in a small period of time, limit the travel, limit some cost, all of that has distinct benefits. They're great. I think the fact that requiring the video to be available has opened it up to a wider range of people that are able to do much better evaluation overall. So the valuation of a group should trump out the evaluation of one or two players. 
but the caveats in video are the lack of context in some of those clips. You need to watch more than just clips of a particular player. You need to watch the team itself and how they fit into that team. There's a lot of things that I think video scouting kind of takes away from a real good live view. And as long as the analyst understands that there are some limitations that they must handle properly, then I don't have an issue if anybody wants to just strictly do video scouting. They need to understand that there are limitations. And that's the, that's where I would end there. Love that. Great insights. I have one more question for you. And that is that I think that the more you do something, sometimes some things get easier. But also you discover new challenges. Einstein famously said, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And I just wonder if you have encountered either of those things. Is there some things as you've been doing this longer that you find easier, certain things maybe to evaluate or certain trends, tendencies, and maybe something that you realize was far more complicated, complex than you thought? I cannot tell you the amount of times I've been sitting in an arena thinking, what the hell am I looking at? Sometimes things just blend where you're not like, for instance, if you watch three games in three days, Friday night game, Saturday game, and then a Sunday game, that Sunday game is not going to be your best effort. It's just, you've traveled, you've watched a lot, talked to a lot of people, that third game may not necessarily be your best. So just be cognizant of how much time and effort you put into a short period of time and how that affects any immediate views. The other thing I've noticed is I have imposter syndrome that would light up the city of Toronto. There are times where I'm thinking, am I really like, what? Why does anybody even bother listening to me? I don't even know if I'm right. Making mistakes is important. You need to be able to do that. So I think sitting in an arena and trying to question yourself, I think that's a vital, important part of you being a better talent value. I think that you need to embrace the fact that, that there's times you're going to be wrong and be happy about that because being wrong means you've now learned something. What I've learned over the course of 10 years is the things that I thought were important a decade ago, they're no longer important. Or if they are important, they've been encapsulated into something grander that I feel has encapsulated more importance than that one individual skill. I used to think that you need to, to really be a great skater in order to play in the NHL. I just don't believe that anymore because I think that over the course of the years, I've learned that you can supplement skills as long as you, you have something that makes you rise above the rest. It doesn't matter whether you're an okay skater or an all right shooter or, a, or an okay playmaker. Something above and beyond is going to make you into an, an impactful player. Find that element that is impactful. Every single NHL player has one elite skill. All the other skills are essentially working around that one elite skill to make a complete player. Find that elite. And that's not always easy. And that's probably the most difficult thing that you'd have to try to uh, evaluate. Once you find that one thing, though, you see how the pieces kind of come into place. You make a lot of mistakes getting to the point where you're able to do that kind of evaluation. Um, and those mistakes are important because you're going to find out what exactly you feel is important and what isn't. The same thing happens on the data side. I felt that certain elements of data were really important, and they're not. I used to think face-offs were absolutely critically important. From a strategic and from a, a, a playmaking perspective, they do contain some importance, but in the end, they don't move the needle on wins. So you have to recognize certain things on the eye side and certain things on the data side. 
and recognize that there are limitations there both on the tools and on the evaluator. I've done a lot of wrong things and things that I've done wrong, I've tried to make better or find better ways to not do those things again. Kind of goes back a little bit to what the bias is. You recognize your bias, recognize that the fact that you're gonna make mistakes along the way, learn to be able to go above and beyond that or just try to incorporate those mistakes and recognize when you see it again and know what to do the following time. Um, it's just a big learning process along the way. And, and there is no one right or wrong method. I think as long as you recognize that you're getting better and using different methods to get better and recognizing that it does get a little bit easier over time, because that's the truth. It does get easier over time. I couldn't tell you why, but it does. You just see things often enough that you can model a player and say, this is the type of player that they are. And then you kind of reach into your bag of, of memories and you place that model into something. And then you try to make a projection. Sometimes those mistakes will repress some of those things that you don't need to add to that model. And unless you actually do make those mistakes, you'll never know. So it's important, I think, to do that along the way, understand who you are, how you evaluate things and how you also change as you gain more experience in that evaluation method. Hope I answered that question for you too. Ladies and gentlemen, Gus Katsuros. Gus, this has just been a very exciting and stimulating and, and interesting conversation. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise and experience and your time with us. It's always a pleasure having you on the podcast, my friend, and I really hope to see you in the rink again real soon. Pete, the pleasure is always mine. Thank you both very much. I, I appreciate the invitation as always. Being the inaugural guest is very touching to me too. So thank you very much and all of that. And I hope that I see you in a lot more arenas as well. It's like scoring the first goal for an expansion team, right? You've, you're permanently in, entrenched in, in our record books. Go crack it. All right. Are you still on Twitter? I, I think you I think you broke up with Twitter, huh? Yeah, I don't have a, a lot to offer on Twitter anymore. So... I kind of use it just for DMs, but I don't really log on very much anymore. So if anybody's looking for it, like Cats Hockey is the handle. I'm on Blue Sky there, but I think my social media presence is starting to dwindle a little bit more. I've also had to be very careful about how and what I make public. I have a lot more pertinent information that I have to be very careful about now. So it's probably best that I just kind of lurk and, and, and be my old dumb self rather than offering a lot of more hockey stuff. All right. Well, oh, I'm happy to give you a platform to be back out there in the public for an hour here and sharing your time with Victor and, and myself. So thanks very much, Gus. And thank we'll you. See, we'll, we'll see you on a future episode. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Double Prospects Report number 22. For feedback on the show or to chat with us, follow us on Twitter at DPR underscore show or at Farling for Peter, P-H-A-R-L-I-N-G, at Victor Nino 12 for me at Sabarin91, S-A-B-O-R-I-N-91. And don't forget to follow at HockeyPodNet for all the great podcast information on the network. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or the podcast aggregator of your choice. It would really help us out if you're enjoying the show to leave us a five-star review. That can help other people find the show, and it really helps us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And I know you'd like that. So that's it for this report. Until next time. Keep your stick on the ice. We're spelling Victor's last name here wrong. There's a U in there. Whoops. Let's do that hockey.